I'm Carl McCollman. I am Kevin Johnson. I'm Cassidy Hall, and we are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by listeners like you. Please visit www.patreon.com slash encountering silence. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be a part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Poets must read and study but also they must learn to tilt and whisper, shout or dance in each his or her own way. Or we might as well just copy the old books. But no, that would never do. For always the new self swimming around in the old world feels itself uniquely verbal. And that is just the point. How the world, moist and bountiful, calls to each of us to make a new and serious response. That's the big question. The one the world throws at you every morning. Here you are alive. Would you like to make a comment? This book is my comment. That's from the foreword of Mary Oliver's Long Life. And here in Encountering Silence, we've long said that we would just love to have Mary Oliver and or Thomas Merton on. Well, we've since long lost Thomas Merton. And at the end of our episode in December of 2018, we shared that our dream guest for the podcast in the coming year was indeed Mary Oliver. Well, the word on the street was that it would be impossible for us to get her to agree to join us, and that took on cold chill finality when we did learn of her death at the age of 83 on January 17th, 2019, less than a month after we professed our longing and desires to speak with her. So now, along with all the grieving lovers of poetry, we are left only with her body of work, including over 30 collections of poetry, prose, essays, and books about poetry. What seems to be an endless supply of wisdom, insight, and awe. She may be best known for specific poems like The Summer Day and Wild Geese, which have attained iconic status in contemporary literature, but all of her writing is remarkable for its lyrical beauty, keen insight, celebration of nature, and accessibility. She's the rare poet who is admired by her peers, winning both the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award, and she was also a best-selling author. Indeed, the New York Times described her as far and away this country's best-selling poet. And here in Encountering Silence, all three of us are among her many legions of fans. And so today we want to honor Mary Oliver, mourn her passing, and reflect on what may be the most profound silence of all, the silence of death. Well, guys, here we are. Just last week, we lost this beautiful and wonderful poet. And I know a few of us reflected on on her by listening to her On Being interview with Krista Tippett. And I was just so blessed by the simplicity and the way that she, I know in that in that interview, she talks about, you know, if you can say things in a few lines, the rest is just decoration. And I know she was heavily influenced by Rumi and Rumi's short works. Today, as I sat down and I, I looked at my bookshelf and, you know, thought about peeling off the, the two feet of books of Mary Oliver. And I thought, well, you know, I'm not sure that, that that's what she would want. I don't think she wants a stack of 
of us sharing her her things and her her work necessarily. But at the end of the day, you know, how how can we best honor her? And I'm curious for each of you uh, where you were when you found out of her passing and and what what you went to go do. Well, you texted me, Cassidy, and I was actually driving. I'm here. I am confessing on the podcast that I looked at a text while I was driving. Carl. But... <laughs> don't do that or you join Mary Oliver sooner than we want you to. But I was I was on I-20 heading towards Mepkin Abbey, where mm. I I was leading a retreat, my my first retreat of 2019. And, a beautiful, and beautiful place to be with nature. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And um, so so I was alone. I was on the road. And of course, just a wave of grief passed over me. Um, the sense of irony, knowing that um, we had just had that conversation on the podcast, what, just just three or four weeks earlier. So I had time to just reflect and reflect on, you know, my relationship with Mary Oliver, which is kind of different from yours. I'm the latest to the party, I think. In fact, I, I remember, I don't remember which episode, but one of the early episodes of this podcast where I said out loud, now who was the poet that made that comment about the one wild and precious life? And both you and Kevin in unison said, that's Mary Oliver. Like, <laughs> you idiot, didn't you know that? <laughs> and, you know, and I was familiar with Mary Oliver, but not intimately so. And, and at that point, I did go and, you know, get a copy of her book, Devotions, which was brand new at that point, and just devoured it. And... You know, I'll be honest, I think I tend to, you know, historically, I've tended to love older poets. You know, I was more a fan of William Butler Yeats than Billy Collins, although I like Billy Collins. And so Mary Oliver, for me, suddenly, wow, here was a poet who is a poet of the ages and who lives among us today. I mean, up until recently. And so she it's funny, we talk a lot about her and Merton on this podcast, and in many ways, they represent similar figures in my heart. Merton, to me, was, you know, the 20th century equal to Meister Eckhart and John of the Cross and Teresa of Avalon, Julian of Norwich, all these great mystics from the past who I love so much. And Merton was the figure who said, that tradition is not dead. That tradition lives. That tradition is still mm. real and meaningful in the 20th mm. century and will continue to be in the 21st. And so for me, I think Mary Oliver became this you know, living figure who was the equal of a William Butler Yeats or a Matthew Arnold or, a, you know, dare I say it, a William, a William Wordsworth, all these great poets of the past. And this, this woman who up until a few days ago lived among us was their equal. And that, that gives me great hope, you know, that literature is a living and breathing thing. And, and not only that she was a brilliant poet, but that she was a successful poet. That, that she touched the lives of so many, many people. And so I really appreciate you and Kevin for kind of, you know, nudging me to get to know her work. So I may be the latest to the party, but, you know, I've fallen in love with her. So, mm. 
I'm going to be honest. I found out through the text that you sent me as well, Cassidy. I was It was a busy day, and, uh, and I think that's the catch, is recently, the last couple of months for me have been very, very busy personally and, and you know, work-wise outside of the podcast. And uh, it was a very distracted day. It was kind of one of these, like, I was running chicken head cut off. And I'm not even sure what time it was you sent that text or where, and or even where I was. But time stopped for a split second. It's one of these things where, like, I, it's as if somebody would rang a bell and it was kind of, okay, Kevin, you're crazy, you're busy, stop for a second, be mindful, take a breath. That text kind of stopped me in my tracks, and it was this piercing kind of deep sadness. I think I, I want to piggyback a little bit onto what Carl just said. I, I feel like there's something to be said about that, about how powerful she is for me, that somehow she's timeless, that she somehow tapped into kind of a language that, as Carl says, some of the greats for me feel mm-hmm. like, even if they wrote, in the year 1200, it feels like they're alive. Their words somehow tapped something in a way that really speaks to me. And Mary Oliver, there are poets, you know, that still do that, that are alive today. But Mary Oliver was one of those ones to me at the top that really did that. And so I, I completely identify with what Carl's saying. Some of these older poets, I, I, I too have this kind of almost nostalgia of the good work has already been done. The good theology has already been written. Uh, we're just copying it and imitating it. And there's no real new work being done. And it feels kind of, and it's probably my mindset of a modern or it feels like there's nothing new. We're all just copies of copies of copies. And I think that's a lie, you know, a lie that I buy into very easily because our culture kind of feeds that. I, that's not true. There's new always. And there's great artists right now and there's great thinkers right now. And sometimes blind to it, you know, for various reasons. And Mary was a light for me. So that text kind of did that for me. I don't really remember much other than time stopped and I felt sad that uh, we weren't going to speak to her personally. But and I and I do feel sad even just thinking about it now that, you know, she's physically not here. But her her mm-hmm. words are just so powerful that it, she hasn't really gone anywhere. And yeah. so it's a weird feeling. What about you, yeah. Cassidy? You're the one who sent the text to us. What? How did you hear about it and how, why did you text <laughs> us? I, I don't know where I saw it, but I saw the the New York Times article that she had died somewhere. And I was actually in the middle of a class. <laughs> and I reached across the table to a friend uh, with tears in my eyes and, and just said, oh my gosh, you know, Mary Oliver died. And of course I, I didn't get the, the reaction that I, that I was hoping for. It didn't seem like there was a camaraderie of, of mournful experience or anything, but yeah, I, you know, it was interesting. It was a, it was a rainy day and my, it was about lunchtime. I think I sent you guys a text just before lunchtime and I thought, oh, gosh, you know, I just something feels weird about just go, just going to lunch. So I decided, you know what, I, I need to go be with Mary in some way. Right. Obviously, figuratively. So I sadly this will change, though. I don't have a Mary Oliver book in my car at all times. So I had to go to a bookstore 
And the the first library I went to didn't have anything. And then I, I finally found a bookstore that had two books. They had Devotions and they had Felicity. And I, I wrote about this a little bit in my blog post. And and I was reading, sitting on the floor of this bookstore, and I thought to myself, but wait a second. Mary doesn't belong inside, right? <laughs> so <laughs> right. I, I went back to class, and I just walked outside in the rain and was reading Felicity. And in particular, there's a, a poem called Moments, and that one really stuck with me. The final line being, there's nothing more pathetic than caution when headlong might save a life, even possibly your own. And it was just really, it's just really a beautiful moment of celebrating her and, you know, getting to be with her in some small way. And of course, you know, I'm also very touched and struck by, by her life of being with her partner, uh, Maggie Malone Cook, for over 40 years. And after the death of Maggie in 2005, she wrote a book titled Thirst. And as you guys know, that's a book I've, I've reread once a year. It's a book full of wisdom and grief, but also coming out of that and still finding awe in, in life and, and wonderful things. There's a, there's a great poem in there called, I think it's called What I Said at Her Service, which is just amazing. I highly recommend that book. And, you know, I, I just really admire the ways that she wrote about love, both in her life with humans, with, with Maggie in particular, but also, or I'm sorry, with Molly, not Maggie. The way she wrote about love with Molly, um, but also the way she wrote about love of nature, as we all know. And that's, I think, one thing we're all attracted to. And also in this book of, of prose and essays, Long Life, I love this little portion about what she, she wrote about uh, Molly. She said, along with the differences that abide in each of us, there is also in each of us the maverick, the daring stubborn one who won't listen, who insists who chooses preference over the spirited guests, over yardsticks, or even history. I suspect this maverick is somewhat what the soul is, or at least that the soul lives close by, and companionably with its agitating and inquiring force. And of course, all of it, the differences and the maverick uprisings, are part of the richness of life. If you are too much like myself, what shall I learn of you, or you of me? I bring home a sassafras leaves and M looks and admires. She tells me how it feels to float in the air above the town and the harbor. And my world is sweetened by her description of those blue miles. The touch of our separate excitements is another of the gifts of our life together. So gentlemen, as we sit with some of these just beautiful words of hers, um, I wonder if either of you have a favorite poem or a favorite book. Carl, I know you mentioned devotions, but... Well, the first book of Mary Oliver's I read actually was her poetry handbook. Yeah. And yeah. and I think it may be the, you know, I, I mean, I'm not extremely widely read on books about the craft of writing poetry, but of the literature that I have read, I think it's probably my favorite. Again, because it's, it's very accessible, it's warm and inviting, but also in some ways very stern. You know, she, she is very clear about having a commitment to craft and being, you know, almost merciless about your own editing process. You mentioned the interview with Krista Tippett. 
You know, I love it on that interview when she talks about, oh, yeah, I started when I was 11 or 12 and I was a terrible poet, <laughs> but I but I but I kept at it. You know, that that this this sense that, you know, don't don't be satisfied with your initial work. She talks about throwing, you know, in the interview, she talks about throwing away a lot of a lot of poetry. And the, but then that the vast majority of her work was, you know, and I mean, all writers get this, that there, there's no such thing as writing, there's rewriting. And that, you know, that she continually would rework her craft and re rework it and hone it. And, and that, that, you know, just became an in, indispensable part of the process. So back to the book, I just, I just have found that book really enjoyable. In terms of the poetry itself, yes, you know, my, my, you know, my primary exposure to her has been through Devotions, which is just a splendid, splendid anthology. You know, if I had to pick a single favorite, you know, I'm I'm going to be kind of cliched and go with the summer day again because of that mm. brilliant question at the end of it, you know, mm. which I think is a question for the ages. But it's it's just such a beautiful poem. It's, you know, her 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 thoughts about prayer. And, I, and I'll say that in general, because this is something that dances through so many of her poems. She said, I think, in the Krista Tippett interview that that when she was a girl, she had problems with the resurrection. And so that's why she never kind of signed up for church membership. But especially over her, her 83 years, I think she was a living embodiment of somebody who truly was spiritual in the best and deepest sense of the word. And, and her poetry, you know, reflects that. There's a line from, from one of her more recent poems. Let me see if I can find it here. Um, Whistling Swans. You know, and this is kind of appropriate for our podcast. She asks this question, quote, yes, I know God's silence never breaks, but is that really a problem? <laughs> End quote. You know, and, and that I, I think really kind of encapsulates the, the wisdom that I hear from, from her, this wisdom that is so comfortable with mystery and, and, and offers hospitality to doubt and unknowing. But in, in a way that's affirming and in a way that, that says yes. So, you know, so you could say she's an agnostic poet, but an, an, an agnosticism that doesn't seek to tear down, an agnosticism mm -hmm. that simply says yes to the mystery. And, mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's contemplative, I think, in the very best sense of the word. So. You know, in, um, in Thirst, she talks about liturgy and she references Matthew. And then she also says... In a, in a poem called Gethsemane, it opens with these words, the grass never sleeps. Mm. And I just love that idea of, she did include a lot of biblical principles in, in, in thirst or biblical thought, influence, I guess, rather would be the proper word. But yeah, and she, you know, she talked about these big words we try to address so many times, like grace. In winter hours, she, she wrote, you can have the other words, chance, luck, coincidence, serendipity. I'll take grace. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it is exactly, but I'll take it. Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath with us and join us for this 30 seconds of silence.
I think this is why I love Mary Oliver. And, you know, I think this is why it makes so much sense on our podcast, why poetry and silence go together. We've, we've talked about this a bunch of times, is that silence is, you know, we constantly say silence is not lack of noise and it's not lack of words or lack of sound. Silence is this shift to this other kind of way of apprehending the world, this kind of intuitive, embodied way. And as Carl said, it's this uh, humility and this kind of hospitality to the mystery. And I think we are all aware on this podcast that when you talk about spirituality and religion, that's really what we're trying to get at. What theology is trying to get at is if you're really looking for, quote, the divine, for grace, for liturgy, for these words, those words are pointing into the silence, are pointing into that shift of that kind of ineffable place in all of us in what it means to be alive, what it means to have a body. And to be, you know, incarnated in this world and then have words about it. Poets seem to recognize that. The other poet who writes about poetry, who's from a Buddhist point of view, Jane Hirschfield, I I read her work and I feel like she points, you know, her and Mary could be best friends, I feel, because they're talking about the same exact thing. They're talking about how poetry has this shift in consciousness. A poet has to have this awareness see the world, pay attention to it, and then give voice to it. Allow the voice to speak through them. And that's a hard thing to do, to be able to let words flow through you that aren't your words, and yet they are. It's this weird Mm -hmm. kind of space, paradoxical space. So that's what I love about her. And if I, you know, if people ask me, if you asked me what my favorite poems are, I, I have a problem. I feel like every poem I read of hers becomes my new favorite because of who I am and in the moment she speaks and wakes me up. But it, I yeah. guess a way to answer that question, to be truthful about it, I think the very first poem I ever fell upon of hers was not, you know, Wild Geese or The Summer Day, which are, again, some of my favorites and iconic. But the I think the first poem I ever stumbled upon hers, and I was trying to think of the date, it's got to be close to, jeez... 1990, gee, like 96, maybe somewhere Mm. around there. But I stumbled on the poem, One or Two Things, which I think it was in the collection, if I can remember. Yeah, that was in Dreamwork. So, and that, that collection is 1986. And so I didn't discover it until a decade after she wrote them. But uh, in One or Two Things, there's a, a section of the poem where she, again, she writes about God, and she calls it the God of dirt, and she doesn't capitalize the letter God, G for God, and she just talks about, basically, it was this moment of her talking about kind of impermanence of and, and shifting of reality, and she, the, in the poem, you know, I don't, for, you know, uh, fair use, I don't want to read too much poetry and, uh, you know, misuse it inappropriately, but I mean, basically, the line is something along the lines of how the God of dirt she is out in nature and she's seeing things and she sees like a frog or a this or that. And she's like, they all speak to her, but all they're saying is now, now, now. And I, it was kind of this, wow, like that's what embodied nature does for us. You know, and what if we're present, you know, our friends, our family, they're just saying, I'm here now. 
I'm here now. Are you here now? Are you present now? And we're not often here now. You know, we know that. We know that we're distracted. Like I said before, I was running around doing work like a distracted chicken head cut off when you texted me, you know. And what Mary does for me is she allows me to say, now, you know, can you can you be present to this unbelievable mystery of now? Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. what I love about her is that she loved the world and she mm-hmm. loved the world enough to listen to what it had to say to her. And I, I just hold that as a model. I think that's the most profoundly theological thing you can do. It's not creating theories about God or it's can you be present to the grace, the love that is now in this embodied thing in front of you? And, and that embodied thing could be you as well. You're part of that embodied thing that's present right now. So, so that's one of the, I guess that's how I would try to get at like what my favorite poem is. I'm not sure that's my favorite poem, but I think it kind of captures what she does, that thread in all of her poems is, is that first one that captured my attention. So Cassidy, can you narrow down to one or two or 20 favorites? Yeah, 25. <laughs> No, I absolutely cannot. Um, <laughs> I don't blame there you. There is no way. Yeah. You can't do that to me. Yep. Yeah, I don't I don't blame you. I don't think again, I don't think I have a favorite either. And it depends on Oh my gosh. Well, in terms of of prose, um I'm a big fan of Upstream, mm. Long Life, mm. Winter Hours. I learned a lot from a poetry handbook, which I appreciate, you know, she she talks a lot in there about the things we discuss on here like rhythm and tone and solitude even she talks about in there in terms of poetry of course thirst is up there uh, i love why i wake early you know dream work which which kevin just mentioned what do we know which is poems and prose so no i mean i'll just i'm just going to keep listing books at this point so but one of the things i truly appreciate about Mary Oliver is, you know, like I mentioned that, that quote from Felicity in the poem Moments, um, where she kind of talks about this headlong living. And I feel like she really demonstrated that. But what's beautiful, she demonstrated that in a quiet way. I do feel like she showed me how to live headlong into life and love while still remaining true to who a person is. And mm. I also really appreciate her her words that are really just great messages to artists. I don't know if you guys have read Upstream. It's a combination of of selected essays, but yeah. she talks a lot about creative work. And I love this this little paragraph right here where, where she says, in creative work, creative work of all kinds, those who are the world's working artists are not trying to help the world go around, but forward, which is something altogether different from the ordinary. Such work does not refute the ordinary, it is simply something else. Its labor requires a different outlook, a different set of priorities. Certainly there is within each of us a self that is neither a child nor a servant of the hours. It is a third self, occasional in some of us, tyrant in others. This self is out of love with the ordinary. It is out of love with time. It has a hunger for eternity. So I think that Losing Mary Oliver just brings us face to face with this question of how death is a silence. Mm. 
you know, and even though obviously I never met Mary Oliver, I'm relatively late to the Mary Oliver party, but I'm feeling some grief now. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure that both of you who have known her work so much longer are, are similarly moved. And that is, that is, you know, she is a, she is a poet of, of nature and of humanity and of the body. Mm-hmm. And so here we have this embodied response to her, to her leaving, to her moving into the silence of eternity. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, you know, I would love for us to explore that topic. That's a topic for one or many entire episodes of the podcast. But for now, I just want to acknowledge that she has moved into the silence. There will be no new Mary Oliver poems, at least on this side of eternity. And I'm sorry about that. Mm-hmm. And yet, such is the nature of things. You know, and, and her poetry did represent, I think, a peacefulness with death, with mortality. I don't know. You guys know better than I do, but certainly after Molly's passing and she had to work through her own valley of grief. But it seems that the poem, the, the fourth sign of the Zodiac, which Cassidy quoted on an earlier episode of the podcast and that I, you know, has now become a poem that I love and I've used it in retreats that I lead. In fact, I used it in the retreat I led at Mepkin Abbey. And when I shared it with everybody and they all said, oh, you're doing this because Mary Oliver just died. And I said, no, I actually decided to use that poem before I heard that she had died. Mm. And, um, you know, and yet it's such a profound poem to read it now. I read it now differently than I read it a week ago. Right. Because now I'm reading that poem through the silence of her own death. But there is this, she talks about, you know, the desire for just a little bit more life, you know, for just, just a little bit extra. And yet, yet the, how, how death or dying or cancer comes to us in silence. It's such a profound, profound poem. Mm. So I'm kind of rambling now. Let me shut up. But if either of you want to jump in and share sure. some thoughts on this whole question of death and silence, I'd please. So interestingly, I read a post of a friend of a friend who had known Mary Oliver to some extent. Hmm. And she talked about meeting her. And when she met her, she was wearing a silence equals death t-shirt. So now I'm kind of really, really struck by that. And, and the silence equals death. The history of that is, I, I believe that began in the 80s, um, a group of New York people. It was about how the silence about oppression and alienation of gay people, and specifically, I believe at that time, the AIDS epidemic, mm. just that silence must be broken. But I love yeah. the idea of Mary Oliver quietly, you know, probably doing a book signing or something, wearing the shirt that says silence equals death. And and I think, so when I think about death in this capacity related to Mary Oliver and, you know, my own personal grief and whatnot, I think it's really just a empowering sense of carrying on some of the, the great work that she did, whether that's by sharing her poems, whether that's by speaking out amid injustices and oppression yeah, I just think there's something really beautiful about thinking about her quietly wearing that shirt, which, mm-hmm. Carl, you actually brought up in a previous episode, that the silence equals death. Well, 
I'm the oldest of the three of us, and and I it was ACT UP was the organization, and it was an mm -hmm. AIDS activist mm -hmm. organization. And you know, we forget that before the mid '90s, AIDS was a death sentence. I mean, I I lost so many friends to AIDS. So many people did. It was it was just a horrific thing. So yeah, at the time, that I mean, the, there were subway posters that saying silence equals death was mm -hmm. a very powerful statement of political protest. You know, and I think it, it was the right thing to say. It needed to be said. It was an important statement. And of course, they were referring to toxic silence. Mm -hmm. But looking at that as a contemplative, I see a positive dimension to that statement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, that silence equals dying to self. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. silence mm -hmm. equals the death of all illusion. Mm -hmm. that's that silence equals the death of all that needs to die mm -hmm. that we can befriend silence just as we can befriend death mm -hmm. so yeah thanks for telling that story Cassie. i love yeah. the image you know in my mind's eye now i see mary wearing that that shirt that's a wonderful wonderful image and, and i'm sure she was so sympathetic you know i mean obviously she was a lesbian so sympathetic to act up and to its its political work on behalf of a person's living with HIV back in the 80s. So, And what's beautiful about that is it's a reminder that to speak up and speak out against injustices and oppression and all the things that we see, you know, we can still be who we are while we do those things. Now, you know, again, we, we this is when we begin talking about the difference between, you know, loving, good silence, um, the place where we meet ourselves and meet our fellow human versus the silence where we know we need to speak out and we don't. And I think that, you know, Mary Oliver kind of encompasses that for me because she did lead a very quiet life. But as far as I know, I mean, she was never, you know, never apologetic about who she was and what she did. And there were certainly people that didn't love her poetry. You know, again, I feel like I want to piggyback on what Carl said it. For me, if we talk about silence and death, we discuss on this podcast a lot about the two kinds of silence. There's the toxic and then there's this kind of positive. And the, we, you need to address both because we do uh, – the toxic one is so toxic. It is so harmful and, and twists and breaks all of us. Uh, it's not just that it uh, oppresses the voiceless. Uh, it, it oppresses – the, those with a voice, because if the voiceless don't speak, then the vo those with the voice aren't really who they are either. I mean, that, that's the the powerful forget that uh, they act as if they're running everything, and I include myself as part of the powerful. The part of our ego that thinks it's running everything, uh, it thinks we are the only one, but we are not a singularity. We are a community. I am only who I am in relationship to the entire world. And if I don't figure out a way of having that kind of relationship th with the whole world, then I don't actually become fully myself. I actually distort and break myself. And so the powerful forget that, you know, the ego forgets that. So we kind of have to be pulled up short. Uh, we need to be re reminded that toxicity of, of that broken silence. But the positive silence, which is there all along, as, as Carl said, as a contemplative as someone who appreciates the kind of the, quote, transcendent, uh, that, that aspect of us that goes beyond the ego, beyond who we think we are, 
silence actually befriends death. I think if you live in the realm of ego and power and control, then silence is actually the opposite of your life. But if you recognize silence and you recognize embodiment as Mary did in her life with her poetry, where she looked at the embodied world and said, and the embodied world said, now, now, pay attention, now. Well, then silence actually embraces death as part of life. It's not an, it's not antithesis to life. Life and death are one. And there's no real living unless you let go and flow, which is a dying. So living and dying are one thing. They're not two separate things, and they're not enemies. They feel like enemies from the point of view of an ego or a power structure who doesn't want change, who likes to hold on, who wants to be in control. But if you let go of control and go into the silence, if you have that hospitality to silence, as as Carl says, then there's a sense that allows for this. And so this is really hard to hold in balance because I never, ever— want to push onto somebody who's been voiceless and say to them, listen, you need to learn to let go, which is just ridiculous. But then at the same time, if you don't offer that positive silence is a piece of what it means to be an embodied being, well, then we fall into that bad story again. So I I think what Mary's death now, symbolic for me of she for a long time tried through her words and through her life and through her work to really be present to the silence. And now I feel like on some level she's united with what she was always trying to be present to. It's mm, beautiful. Well, guys, this was a really healing conversation for me and I want to want to limit words to, to what I have to say. And I want to give Mary the last words from the end of her poem in Blackwater Woods. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. Thank you guys. And thank you, Mary Oliver. Thank you, Cassidy. And yes, thank you, Mary. Thank you for listening to the Encountering Silence podcast. If you enjoy our ongoing conversations about the beauty of silence and its meaning in our lives, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or at our website, EncounteringSilence.com. You can subscribe to our email list at our website, connect with us on social media, on Twitter at Silence Podcast, or on Facebook at Encountering Silence. And please visit Patreon.com slash Encountering Silence. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash encountering silence to become a patron of this podcast your financial support will allow us to continue creating new episodes and spreading the message of how vital silence is to our social spiritual and physical well-being <laughs>